Yes, Sarah. Hi, Allison. So there's a lot going on in France mm-hmm. these days, actually the world. <laughs> and one of the more unexpected things that came up in the last couple of weeks here, although it's been bubbling under the surface for years, is this idea of autonomy for Corsica. Yeah, Corsica, the island off the southern coast of France, which has a strong nationalist movement. Yeah, yeah. And last week, for the first time ever, a French government official evoked the idea of autonomy. Mm. That was the interior minister, Gérard Darmanin, he said it was on the table. This came after weeks of really violent protests, which were triggered by the fatal attack on the Corsican nationalist Yvon Colonna. He was serving a life term in prison on mainland France for the murder of the Corsican prefect back in 1998. Yeah, Colonna was strangled by another inmate who was serving time for terrorism. And it made Corsicans really angry because Colonna could have been serving time in a Corsican jail closer to home and possibly sheltered from more violent criminals. And it reawakened a feeling that Corsicans are are treated differently from people on the mainland and with a certain amount of disdain from central government. And so people took to the streets and the protests got results. Yeah, yeah, interestingly. And Damanin said autonomy would be discussed in the second term of Emmanuel Macron's presidency if he's re-elected. Yeah, and there's just two weeks to go, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Until the first round of the elections. Candidates are only now, though, starting to have meetings and rallies. Macron still has a good lead in the polls, followed by the far-right Marine Le Pen, then the hard-left Jean-Luc Mélenchon, and then you get the conservative mainstream right Valérie Pécresse, followed by the far-right pundit Éric Zemmour, who looks to have slipped back a bit in the polls. Yeah, the war in Ukraine has dampened this campaign considerably, but some domestic issues are finally emerging. Ah, que la chasse est un sport attachant. Rien n'est plus beau que la chasse. C'est bon de marcher des heures à travers champs. Dans la bonne terre grâce. On Tuesday this week, the French Federation of Hunters, the FNC, invited candidates to come and say what they would do for hunting. Hunting. Yeah, hunting we will go. Uh, It might seem a bit micro, uh, but France's hunters do have political weight. Partly just because of the numbers. Hunting is France's third most popular pastime after fishing and football. And the Federation has 1.1 million licensed hunters and it's estimated around 4 million people go hunting across France every year. But it's also an electoral issue because hunters embody rural France. No candidate standing for office can afford to neglect the countryside, even if the vast majority of French people now live in urban areas. Emmanuel Macron himself has been pretty kind to hunters, notably halving the cost of their hunting license. But but there's been a lot of anti-hunting talk lately because of accidents. Mm. A young woman was recently fatally shot by a stray bullet when she was out jogging in the forest. A man driving his car was also hit by a stray bullet in his neck. Yeah, the accidents got a lot of media coverage, quite rightly, and gave renewed energy to calls from animal rights groups for an outright ban on hunting. But still, none of the top five candidates are in favour of a ban. It has to be said that hunting has a unique place in French history. It used to be the preserve of royalty and the upper classes. But after the French Revolution in 1789, it became open to everyone. Mm, Kind of a symbol of liberty and sort of taking what was the elite and Mm. giving it to everyone. 
I could see how people are attached to that. Yeah. And so those who want to put limits are seen as clamping down on tradition, a hard one, if you like, tradition. Mm. Yannick Jadot of the Greens and Jean-Luc Mélenchon of the hard left France Unbowed Party are pushing for a ban on hunting, but at weekends and during school holidays so that more people can benefit from the countryside without fear of, well being shot. Mm. Um, but as a result, they didn't get invited to the FNC's meeting this week. Ah, I see. Not invited. Not super democratic. No, but the hunting federations say, well, there can't be any meaningful debate with them anyway, because they just trash the hunters so much. Uh, it's true that recently a French Green MEP got hunters' backs up when he said that the proposed ban on weekend hunting and during school holidays was, I quote, to stop transmission of the hunting tradition addition mm. to the younger generation. Yeah, so really just actually stop it altogether. That's yeah, intense. it doesn't yeah. yeah, it feels a bit weird, doesn't mm. it? Um I met one of these hunters, Denis Pla, at the FNC meeting. He's a retired army officer who is now I must say, chief editor at the online hunting magazine, J'aime la chasse, I love hunting. He talked to me about his unbridled passion and why it won't be easy for any one party to capture the hunter vote. I began hunting with my grandfather and my father before the legal age. I shouldn't say so, but it's a fact. And I'm really not only fond of hunting, it's more than a passion, it's a way of living. And as in the UK, it's the soul of the countryside. Or even more. Uh, it's probably even more, because in the UK it's a little restricted to a certain class of the society, while in France it's a very popular way and art of living. Hunting is a heritage of the French Revolution and it goes to all the classes of the society, from the workers to the CEO. The way that it's presented in the media and the way that people talk about it now is not in those positive terms. How do you reply to people who say that it is a kind of tradition from a bygone age, that our relationship with animals is changing and that it has to be more regulated? It's already uh, regulated a lot. Hunting in France is probably the most regulated hobby or sport of all. And it's quite normal. We have weapons in our hands, so I fully agree with all these regulations. For the people who speak about shooting and hunting as a middle age uh, hobby... Something from the Middle Ages, from yeah. The, something yeah. from the Middle Ages. Yeah. They probably live in a suburb or the big cities, and they are completely disconnected of the rural life or countryside life. They don't understand that the worker from the factory is more than happy to have oxygen. They probably will shoot two, three animals during the weekend. But the fact is that they were among friends, and this is their oxygen. On the other hand, you have very exclusive hunting estates, but this is the richness of the French hunting, which goes from the low level, I would say, uh, to the so-called elite. And that gives a real strength to the French hunting, because one million, a little more than one million hunters in France, it's a political power. 
So clearly you're a political force, more than a million potential voters. Do you think that up till now the subject of hunting hasn't been sufficiently taken into account by politicians? It was not, but it was not necessary. Hunting and shooting were not attacked as they are now. So we have now to defend ourselves. And the best way to defend is to attack. But I don't want to say that the hunters in France are a single vote. Hunting, it's diverse, socially speaking, and politically speaking also. In the southwest part of France, the left wing uh, socialist party is very powerful and a lot of hunters are from this left part but they now understand more and more that the socialist party is getting alliance with the greens so it's beginning to be a problem of course the green party is not represented among the hunters, as you can imagine. I've heard hunters defend hunting, saying it's a form of conservation, that you're helping to preserve the forest. Why is it so incompatible with the Greens? You seem to have become enemies. We are enemies now, uh, because the Greens are not green only. We call them the watermelon. Green outside, red inside. Red in the sense of far left. Uh, of, of far left. They don't want to protect the animals, in fact. They want to destroy a certain way of life to be able to then destroy the society that they hate. Ecology. Society that they hate? That's very strong language. Yes, if you hear uh, some um, speeches and declarations of uh, green leaders, you can see that hunting is just a slight thing that they want to destroy to be able to go further and change completely the current society. We are friends with real ecologists, not greens. People who understand that hunting, ethical hunting, can be a good point for conservation. For example, Geneva has banned hunting since 1974. The partridge has officially disappeared. This is not the case in France. Thanks to who? Thanks to the hunters who protect not only the animals, but also the um, place where they live, who put a lot of money and a lot of work to protect the lands and the animals. So it's a real benefit for the country life, for the nature itself. And that Green cannot admit it, because it would say that we are really helping the nature while they don't. A little word on safety. There have been accidents. What is being done to try and reduce that? We are the first who want to increase the safety because 95% of the victims are hunters. But a lot has been done already. We have rules and regulations coming from the state and we have our own rules and regulations. Uh, we have now, every 10 years, one day for each hunter to go back to his hunting federation to be rebriefed about safety measures. Nobody forced us to adopt this. We did it. And it's been put into a law by the government, but it's on the behalf of the hunters. So we are doing a lot. We can do more, but we will not improve safety with a law. Uh, it has to come from the hunters themselves because they know the problem. Two of the candidates in this election are saying let's reduce the time that people can hunt, especially you know, weekends. Isn't that worth thinking about as a way of saying actually nature belongs to everyone? Nature doesn't belong to everyone. It's a common 
good, uh, but most of the hunting is done on private lands. And in France, 75% of the forest are private. So as long as I don't hunt on public fields or public forest, nobody can stop me from hunting, first of all. Secondly, in the forest of the state, which is called forêt domaniale in French, we don't hunt, we don't shoot. Sundays and Saturdays are usually dedicated to hunting with horses and hounds, which is not dangerous at all. So on the private lands, of course, uh, you can go without being invited. But if there is a hunting party going on, don't be stupid. So in fact, even if hunting was banned in France, they wouldn't be able to ban it from private property, no, would they? The hunting right is attached to the property to the land and to the landowner. So it's not going to be banned, is it? I mean, no, you can't no. really say it's under threat even, can you, uh, seriously, in France? There are many threats. First of all, because of the Greens. Then because of small groups and associations who sometimes are extremely violent against us. We have cars damaged, we have uh, you know, hunting towers uh, destroyed. Every day I received uh, death threats and insults and so on. That is a threat. Politically speaking, these little groups have an audience, a very big audience, because they have relay in the mainstream media. So they make a lot of noise. Well, there is a general movement towards being more sympathetic to animal rights. It's growing, that uh, kind of consideration yes, for the animal world. I, I fully agree, it's growing. But I don't think that animals have rights. We have obligations towards nature, towards the animal, uh, but animals don't have rights. But of course, if I am in the streets and I see somebody beating a dog violently, I will cross the street and stop him. I love nature, I love animals, but that's why also I'm a hunter. Because I know the animals, I know the nature. I can know the name of this tree and the, the name of this bird, which is not the case of so many people who are so uh, in favor of uh, animal wellness. They don't know the difference between a crow and a pheasant, but they will speak for hours of animal wellness. So it's clear that he and other hunters won't be voting for mm. the Greens. <laughs> but which of the candidates did the best uh, in terms of, you know, seducing these hunters? Well, Denis Plas said he liked uh, Jean Lassalle. That's Mr. Countryside, ah, right. uh, the former shepherd from the Pyrenees and who's been running on a rural ticket for years now. Uh, he really defends hunting and rurality to the hilt. The problem is he has absolutely no chance whatsoever of making it through to the second round. Uh, Fabien Roussel, the communist candidate, also got a really good reception. He's very pro-hunting, but as Platt said, he's a communist, uh, so no go on that one. Yeah, I can't vote for him. <laughs> no. Uh, the two most convincing candidates for him, at least, were the far-right Eric Zemmour and conservative Valérie Pécresse. Both of them agreed that they would set up a ministry for rural life, which is one of the things the Hunting Federation is demanding. That said, as Pla told me, the candidate's stance on hunting is only one issue that will weigh in the balance when they head to the ballot box on the 10th of April, just two weeks away. Hey Sarah, Roland Barthes, do you know him? 
Well, I know the name. I have to say, he talked about language and signs, right? But I guess I don't know that much about him. Yeah, you're on the right lines.、Mm. He was a French intellectual and essayist. He became very famous for his work on semiology, so the language of signs. That was in the 1960s and 70s. He died 42 years ago this week, on March the 26th, 1980, in rather sad circumstances. He was hit by a laundry lorry、Ooh. and died a month later, aged. Just sixty-four. He looked at words as signs, so not just identifying things, but looking at the the connotations around the words.、Mm. A simple example: the cockerel. It's a bird that crows. Definition, but it's also a bird that wakes me up in the morning when it crows, and even more, perhaps, a bird that embodies French identity and pride, even chauvinism. Ah, right, right. The the picture of the cockerel is the the symbol of France, so it evokes a lot of stuff. I suppose this. Whole concept becomes key to advertising. Yeah, exactly. One of Bout's most famous works was Mythologies, in which he unpicked popular culture. He took lots of seemingly unrelated subjects like advertising, horoscopes, religion, food, even the Eiffel Tower, and he studied them as elements of mass culture. And for him, he found that they were full of ideology. So, in his terms, popular culture provides society with the myths that we used to get through fables and epics, for example. Huh. Interesting. I mean, he would have probably had a field day today with all the signs and symbols on on social media. I mean, just so much there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The blue ticks and、mm-hmm. and the thumbs, etc. Um, his work does seem even more relevant today than ever. In fact, but it's for another reason. When I was looking into him, I found a French academic who has said that Bart anticipated the question of non-binary identity. Oh, interesting. We we've talked about this a bit in the podcast episode sixty-five、mm-hmm. with the recent controversy over the. This gender-neutral pronoun "yel" combining him and her, "il" and "elle." Yeah, some people, including within the French government, were outraged that a dictionary had included the word in its online version.、Uh, the academic Mathieu Messager, who's written about Bart, argues that Bart defended the idea that male and female power come together in the same entity. In fact, and Bart termed this the ultrasex or the ideal sex. In 1977, he gave a year-long course at the Collège de France. It was called Neutre or Neutral, and that argued that the structure of language and the French language, in particular, was founded on fundamental binarism. So you've got masculine, feminine, you and I, singular and plural, and all of this generates conflict because when you say he, you don't say she, and in fact, you exclude she when you say he. La langue, comme performance de tout langage. N'est ni réactionnaire ni progressiste. Elle est tout simplement fasciste. Language is neither reactionary nor progressive. He says it's quite simply fascist, because fascism doesn't consist in preventing you from saying; it's to oblige you to say it. Wow, that's、uh, that's fascism. All right, that's intense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He certainly didn't mince his words, and you can understand why his lectures got a big following. He's、uh, yeah, a、mm. bit of a radical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, in terms of going back to that mon- non-binary, looking at the law in 2014, a French court allowed someone to identify as neutral on their、oh. identity documents, but this was overturned on appeal. So for now, the law doesn't recognize non-binary identities in France. You only have the choice of male or female. Shalom, salam, 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 salam
So France is preparing for the arrival of 100,000 Ukrainian refugees, people fleeing Russia's invasion. So far, just a few of them have actually arrived. The government's provided some 10,000 temporary residency permits to Ukrainians. There are probably even more here mm -hmm. unofficially, Sarah, right? People staying with friends and family or maybe just uh, transiting through. Yeah, yeah. And there's been an outpouring of help from ordinary people here. Also, cities have been setting up welcome centers to help with housing and paperwork. Paris has set up a welcome center at the convention center in the south of the city, which this week hosted a convention about franchises. So mm. in front, there were people in business suits milling around in their convention badges. And then towards the back, a long line of people with bags a world apart. People sit wearily in white plastic chairs throughout this part of the convention center. They sit holding folders and passports, suitcases and bags at their feet. A few have their pet cats and carriers. Oksana has spent the morning here to get papers that will allow her and her daughter to stay in France. They arrived in Paris a week ago from Kyiv. The first days were tiring, she says, but now things are better organized. She rustles a paper-wrapped sandwich, which she hands to her three-year-old daughter sitting next to her, who asks for her phone. No, I'm not going to give it to you, Oksana says. She's traveled to many parts of the world, but despite being a French teacher, this is her first time in France, not in the best circumstances. She left Kyiv with a French colleague and Natalie, another Ukrainian French teacher with her two daughters, who are sprawled out on chairs next to her as she waits for her turn to get documents. We stayed a bit after the war started, she says, but given what happened around us, we decided to leave. When my body started shaking, that's when I understood that we have to leave the country. The group traveled together by car. The older kids sat on the floor as there weren't enough seats for everyone. They arrived in France via Romania, Hungary, Austria, and then Germany. The goal was Paris, as that's where they had connections, friends of colleagues who put them in touch with people who could house them. The center can process about 200 people at a time. People can get food and water here during the day, even sleep here a few nights on cots until they can find housing. It's loud and echoey. Aid organizations have organized play areas for the kids, full of toys and stuffed animals, covering the drab-colored temporary walls with their drawings. But most of the kids are sitting quietly on the white chairs with their parents, waiting. Many look just as exhausted as the adults. Malik Ba says it's been at least three days since he slept. He left Kyiv with his Ukrainian wife and their five children, and they've just arrived in Paris on a bus from Germany. They headed straight to the center. They've been offered a room. Not much space for so many people, but it's something. We've been well-received. It's impressive. They gave food to the kids, a place to sleep, he says. They left Kiev in a hurry. There were bombs falling everywhere. The children had never seen anything like that. They were scared, and it was complicated. We crossed the Polish border. There were buses that brought us to Germany, and from there we went to France, because I speak French. Malik is originally from Mali. For now, he and his family plan to stay in France for a while. The kids will go to school. They know a bit of French already. 
Avec l'adaptation, ils vont comprendre le français. With adaptation, they'll learn French, he says. The center provides information about school enrollments, also potential work opportunities, everything someone might need, whether they're staying long-term or just in transit. Another woman named Aksana, a translator with one of the aid organizations, says most people she's spoken with don't intend to stay in France very long. They ask me what they'll do with their temporary papers if they go home. She's Ukrainian from a small village near the border with Belarus. She lives in France with her husband and young daughter. And helping out here at the center is a good way to distract from the news coming out of Ukraine. Her own parents are still there and don't want to leave. As long as there's nothing falling from the sky, we're staying, they told her. Oksana, the French teacher from Kiev, is taking things one day at a time. I hope I'll return home in two months, maximum, because my husband is there, my parents. We hope we'll go home right away. Her parents stayed behind to take care of her sick grandmother, and her in-laws didn't want to leave their three dogs and four cats. She left everything behind. Work, friends, apartment, everything's there, she said. But I've understood that you don't need much to live. Your child, a backpack, your documents. That's all you need. So, Sarah, a lot is clearly being done for the Ukrainians. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for those who can prove they lived in Ukraine until the start of the war, they get a six-month temporary residency permit, renewable up to three years here. And this applies across Europe. I mean, it's actually a process that was put in place after Kosovo, but it's never been used until now. They also get access to emergency housing and also to an asylum seeker stipend, which starts at 400 euros a month for a single person, increases with the number of people in your family. People are being sent across France, and offers of housing have been pouring in across the country. It's part of an outpouring of generosity from everyone, which has included clothing and toy donations as well. This is rather different, isn't it, from the welcome that previous refugees got here in France that were coming from other countries? Absolutely, yeah. And it's not at all lost on the associations that are involved in helping the Ukrainians. Emmanuel Olivier, the director of the Salvation Army Foundation here, says it's great that people want to help the Ukrainians, but that we shouldn't forget about all the other people here. The foundation produced a report called Les Oubliés du Droit d'Asile, the Forgotten Asylum Seekers, to make sure that they don't get forgotten. We're talking about Sudanese, Afghans, communities that maybe have fewer direct links with our society, but that doesn't mean we should forget them. We are seeing differences in housing, access to documents, before they were not a priority, and now it's even worse. There are associations, and even our own employees who are asking questions, even part of our society. So we are very aware of this issue. We don't want to reproduce what's happened in Calais, for example, where a Ukrainian welcome center has opened next to tents where people are living rough, people who have been there for years and are living in very difficult situations. And in this line of work, there is the concept of prioritizing vulnerability. It's not about numbers, but individually, how do we manage those who are suffering the most? It has to be said that most of the Ukrainians coming here to France are women and children. The men actually can't leave Ukraine, or very few of them, um, which is actually quite different from previous refugee waves, which most of them have been young men. Yeah. 
Maybe it, it makes them seem a little less threatening, perhaps. Sure. And yeah. it certainly helps that this Ukraine conflict feels like it's also happening in our backyard. And that's it for the show. Spotlight on France is a production of the English service of Radio France International. This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompiani. And if you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you listen to us. And we'd like to hear from you. You can send us an email at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. You can also find us on Instagram, Spotlight on France, and find previous episodes at rfienglish.com or your favorite podcast app. We'll be back in two weeks on Thursday, April the 7th. Bye for now, Sarah. Bye, Alison. Bye.